This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. My guest this week is Morgan Guyton, a reverend and author. But before I get to our conversation with him, I want to talk again about how you can support the show via Patreon. I've revamped the support pledges for various levels and want to tell you about the new rewards. For a dollar a month, you'll become an official member of the X community and gain access to the private Exvangelical Facebook group. For $3 a month, you'll be able to attend a private Google Hangout where I'll discuss various topics related to our episodes, news, books, articles, and other topics. For $5 a month, you'll gain access to a monthly book club podcast which will discuss a book or article. And this episode will be unlisted and only available to patron supporters through the Patreon newsfeed. For $10 a month, you'll be name-checked and get your name in the credits. And for $20 a month, you will receive some swag in your physical mailbox. Producing Exvangelical takes considerable time and investment through research, interview prep, promotion, networking, web hosting costs, and more. This work is incredibly meaningful to me, and I hope to you as well. By supporting the show through Patreon, you'll enable me to invest even more into the show and bring you the stories of those who've had brushes with evangelicalism and fundamentalism, come out the other side, and have something to say. I'm also relaunching the Exvangelical website in the next week, where I hope to provide even more content in the form of essays, blog posts, and more. This is what I wake up thinking about. I think about the people I've met online as a result of these conversations, and how meaningful they've been. I want to keep it growing, and for that I need your help. You can find Exvangelical's Patreon page at patreon.com slash exvangelicalpod. The show is also on Twitter at exvangelicalpod, on Facebook at facebook.com slash exvangelicalpod, and on Instagram at exvangelicalpod. You can also support the show by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. And finally, you can follow my antics on Twitter at brchastain. Now let's move on to my conversation with Reverend Morgan Guyton, the author of How Jesus Saves the World from Us. 12 Antidotes to Toxic Christianity. A link to purchase his wonderful book is available in the show notes. All right, let's get into it. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exvangelical. I have with me this week Morgan Guyton. He is a co-director of the NOLA Wesley United Methodist Campus Center in New Orleans, and he's also the author of the book How Jesus Saves the World from Us, 12 Antidotes, 12 Antidotes to Toxic Christianity. Welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really uh, appreciate uh, you reaching out a, a while ago and sending me a copy of your book to read through, and I'm, I'm really happy to sort of just talk through both your book and what kind of led you to where you are now. Absolutely. So let's start just at the beginning. Uh, where where are you from? Where did you grow up? Yeah, so, um, so I grew up in Houston, um, and I um, grew up in a Texas Baptist family. Um, my grandpa was a regent at Baylor University. And he was basically a stereotypical Texas Baptist. Um, he works in the oil industry, um, you know, super conservative, um, grew up on a watermelon farm, but he was not a fundamentalist. And he would often say that I am conservative. I am not fundamentalist. And so, um, you know, he was kind of like the patriarch of our family. Mm-hmm. Um, my, he was my, my, uh, 
mother's father, and my mom was a, a Southern Baptist church lady, um, full-time volunteer, uh, really more of a church volunteer than a homemaker. And my dad um, is a um, an endocrinologist um, in a uh, well, I guess I shouldn't say that he's a closet Democrat because that would out him. But um, yeah, I mean, he's he's pretty openly uh, openly Democrat, um, you know. And so he was kind of uh, the oddball um, in our family. But my my parents taught Sunday school. Or uh, yeah, I guess they don't teach it anymore. They taught it for about thirty five years. Oh, um, wow. And um, yeah, and so um, but I grew up so it was really a moderate um, Southern Baptist home and um in family and what's interesting is my so my grandpa was really involved in texas baptist politics and particularly like i i grew up basically in the during the takeover of uh the fundamentalist takeover of the southern baptist convention mm. and so almost as soon after i i learned how to say jesus i learned the names of paul pressler and Paige patterson and jerry falwell and um you know, and these kind of fundamentalist boogeymen that um, that were, uh, you know, just kind of ruining our church. And so it was really interesting to grow up in this kind of almost activist, uh, moderate Southern Baptist home. And my mom would say, you know, if, when I call her a Southern Baptist today, like she gets really offended because she is a cooperative Baptist now. Oh, um, really? That's so, that's not a distinction I've heard before. So yeah, cooperative that... Baptist fellowship or CBF is the kind of moderate um, Baptist. But what I always say about moderate moderate um, evangelicals versus conservative ones is that um, moderate evangelicals have the same beliefs, but they're embarrassed and conflicted about them. <laughs> You know, and that was kind of what I got growing up was like, we were officially supposed to believe that, you know, billions of people were going to hell, but, um, but we were kind of discreet about it, you know, and not totally in your face. Um, yeah. And, and so, so, so there was just, it was kind of, we were kind of conflicted and, you know, and I would ask like questions like, what if somebody never heard about Jesus and they, you know, they lived in India or, you know, Mongolia or something. And, and then. And I don't know, my question didn't always, it really didn't get a straight answer, you know? And um, I think that, you know, some of the folk were um, in my church were kind of agnostic on the question of heaven and hell, or uh, or, or they, they just didn't want to talk about it. Okay. Yeah, so you had a moderate, like, home life, but the overall church life you, you all attended was this more just general conservative Southern Baptist sort of. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, we would call ourselves moderate, but there was no question that like, I mean, everyone except my dad was a Republican, you mm. know? Um, and that, that was just kind of assumed, you know, in, in Texas Baptist culture. Um, yeah. And so, um, so, so I grew up with um, this sense that I was definitely not a fundamentalist and that we defined ourselves against fundamentalism, but we didn't really have an alternative theology. We just, uh, it was like our theology was kind of their theology, but just a little bit less strident and a little bit more reasonable. Um, there wasn't, there wasn't really a definitive, you know, um, difference. Mm -hmm. And was that something you started to sort of sense early? Like, I don't know, when you were 10 or younger, or was it something that you sort of um, 
started to into it later in your your teen years or something like that. Yeah, it was kind of when I was a teenager, and um, you know, I mean, I never really bought into um, the the official explanations, and I think that seeing that a lot of the adults that that you know didn't seem like they completely bought into them either. I think that that sort of encouraged me to to just kind of play along, but not not take it too seriously. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, I definitely believed, you know, in in Jesus and believed that we need to have a personal relationship with Jesus. And I wanted to, you know, have a, a holy life. And part of um part of what happened with me is that I was I was kind of an a, a little bit of a social outcast. Um because I have um just some um like a little bit of um autism i guess um you know just kind of mildly on the spectrum and stuff like that and mm-hmm. so so i didn't have good like social intuitions okay mm-hmm. and um and so part of i don't know how common this is but um but part of my way of defining myself against my bullies you know and against the other kid the cool popular kids was well i'm a christian and they're not you know or and and within i I'm sure you're familiar with this in evangelical culture. Like other people are nominal Christians, but we're real Christians, you know. And that was kind right, of like yeah. this thing that I cl- that I cling to um, as someone who, you know, wasn't um, in the in crowd socially. And it was like it was the one thing that I had that that I could hold over other people who, you know, had more friends and um, and were able to get dates with girls. Was that well? I'm a Christian, you know. Right. Not. Yeah. Yeah. And and that sort of utilizing the sense of being uh, elect as a as a coping mechanism. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That that makes sense. I mean, it it does make sense if you're you're utilizing the things you're taught in order to <laughs> self preserve, really. Mm hmm. Uh, so were you part of like a, a youth group culture? Um at the time yeah or... yeah um and i got really uh, i got really involved in in young life um because at young life the 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 popular pretty girls would talk to me um because they were because <laughs> you know, they were being nice because it's a christian place and you're supposed to be nice to people so um and i um i went to um the young life um summer camp and so i, I so i got baptized when i was eight but then I kind of re-upped my salvation at this Young Life summer camp called Windy Gap, um, and Young Life is like a parachurch um, organization for for high school students. And um, and then I went on a they they did a backpacking trip um, my at, somewhere after my junior year in high school when I went up um, into the Adirondack Mountains in New York, and that was a really cool experience. Cool, uh, yeah. And and so it was it was a cool space, and there were very um, there were some really solid um, leaders in that. There were also, you know, some leaders that were kind of a, a little bit more rigid, I guess, in their theology. But mostly, Young Life they 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 really don't um, they really keep the the theology kind of light and don't don't go into depth with it with with people because they're they're mostly it's mostly evangelism, you know. There's, right, and it's seeker friendly or that sort of yeah yeah thing yeah. So yeah, I had a really really good time with that and now I was kind of le- leading a double life. Um the year after I 
um, re-upped my salvation with Jesus. I smoked more weed than the year before it. Um, so I kind of had this whole, I, I don't even know how I put these different identities together. I mean, at the time, it didn't seem like it was contradictory per se, but I was definitely partying and everything. And um, and at the same time, um, also really pursuing, um, you know, a spiritual path. And I was, um, I was in a, a, a small group Bible study. I, can't, I think they called it campaigners or something like that mm-hmm. with Young Life. And um, and and that went really well. Um, then when I went to college, I got involved with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And um, in my first year, that was really cool. And I was really like on fire, um, you know, and I um, I actually like I was a little bit crazy. I I printed up tracks like my own. I wrote my own tracks and printed them up in the computer lab and like handed them out to people on the sidewalk. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, that's, I was, that's zealous. <laughs> I was a little bit over the top, and um, but then um, I was nominated for leadership position, and um, and there were I had this rival um in the group, and he said so so there was a piece of paper you had to sign that said that you believe that the bible is in, inerrant or something like that and, and i was just going to sign it because i was like whatever yeah sure it's inerrant i don't care you know but he said you can't sign that because you don't believe that because it had come out that i didn't believe that like noah's ark was a historical event you know oh, i thought okay. it was just kind of a you know a, a, a legend like a, a story used to illustrate truth you know and um and he said, you can't sign that piece of paper. If you try to do it, then I'm going to challenge you on it. You know, I'm going to challenge you publicly. And so I crumpled up the piece of paper and threw it away. And I stopped going to InterVarsity. And all the people there that, you know, I thought were like, you know, my BFFs for life, like nobody really came after me. And so um, I found other people to hang out with. Huh. That's uh. I mean, that's gotten, that had to have been very frustrating and very just uh, demotivating, <laughs> really, when yeah, it comes down it was, to it. It was, it was pretty painful. Um, around the same time, I, um, I actually rushed a, um, a service fraternity, and then, um, and then that became my, my new community, essentially. Um, and it was, it was Alpha Phi Omega, and, um, and basically a bunch of really just really beautiful, kind, loving people who, um, you know, I mean, really just exhibited the fruits of the spirit and they were, um, they seemed pretty Christian to me, even if they weren't officially Christian, you know, I mean, they are, they're, they're just had all the qualities of it. It's just that they, you know, we weren't arguing about stupid shit you know, <laughs> with, with doctrine and stuff. Cause, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I had I, never encountered Calvinism before until I got to college. And then that was all that, um, cause I lived in this apartment with guys from InterVarsity and that, and it was just like the, the debates were continuous oh, and, really? uh, it was just, it was pretty obnoxious. <laughs> That's, I mean that, uh, yeah, I don't know whether Calvinism, as you mentioned, the sort of influx at the time of the, of the Southern Baptist uh, convention and all the different people from the religious right, um, when I think of Southern Baptist now, I do think of Calvinist and, um, right. I, I went to a Wesleyan college, so we were on the other side of the debate, but one of mm. my, one of my best friends in, um, in high school went to Wheaton and, uh, yeah. uh, and he had a, ro- he had a roommate 
they actually put up a tulip, like a picture of a tulip, <laughs> <laughs> like in their dorm room. Um, yeah, I hate that flower. Right? It's, just, you know, it's so, completely ruined. Like, yeah, because like, I'm just thinking total depravity. You know? Yeah, yeah. and uh, um, Calvinism wasn't necessarily a uh, uh, the only exposure I really had to it was um, was really later in probably later in college and then i did have like the the alternative which i went to united methodist church growing up i was confirmed i think you know you're confirmed when you're 13 and um i I remember them mentioning prevenient grace (laughs) and that was basically it um but then calvinism came came later uh so Mm. i'm actually kind of uh surprised that you um with your with your baptist background didn't uh sort of confront it or come across it until yeah well the um the calvinism that al moeller and his people brought in was kind of a second wave of so like the the original fundies that took over were um you know were more like still in the armenian camp but then al moeller was kind of like the second wave of southern baptist fundamentalism so it, it came along I think in just in the early 2000s or late 90s, like when I was in college, that was the that was kind of the time of the big Calvinist surge. I think. Yeah, yeah, and then the the new Calvinists that came short. I don't know. Maybe that's re- referring to the same people. Uh, yeah, somewhat. I, some I'm, overlap. Right. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Definitely. That that push, and especially within like Christian bookstore networks and things like that, Calvinism mm. just spread. Um. So, uh, so any, so you mentioned you, you rushed to fraternity, so you weren't at, you weren't at a Christian school, but you were heavily involved in Christian organizations and activities while you were at a Christian, while you were at college. Yeah. Yeah. I was completely immersed my freshman year and the first half of my sophomore year. And then Um, like, I, like I would do like, um, I would go to three worship services a week, um, and two different small group Bible studies. Um, so I was just and 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 church on Sundays, um, you know. And again, part of that was because I I wasn't very confident socially, and so I it was just a place where I could go, and um, you know, meet girls, and it was okay to talk, you know, to just kind of be a Bible nerd and you know and talk about Jesus and not not have you know the 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 right jokes that I had to have to you know, to function socially in other spaces. Right. Yeah. So after this sort of, and uh, this sort of event where, where basically you no longer associate, not, not even really willfully, you just, you don't pursue a particular role in this inner varsity group. And then no one really follows up with you. You just have this, <laughs> this, the bottom sort of drops out of this network you had. You were able to sort of replace that, uh, from what from what you said, it, it sounds like you were able to replace that with this new fraternity group. But did that um, engender any sort of uh, frustration with the church or with religion in any sort of way? Yeah. So um, well, it was kind of. I mean, I, I guess I really felt just set free, um, and um, and I went to this um, liberal Presbyterian church um, that was on like uh, on the same street where all the frat houses are. And, and we had always like, 
you know, kind of judged it when we walked past it. Like it was sort of notorious for being liberal. And so like all the evangelicals, when we walked past it, we were like, you know, that's the liberal church where the people aren't really Christian. And so I went there, of course, when, um, when I left the evangelical scene and, and it was, yeah. And, um, the, uh, the preacher there, he would, he would make fun of Republicans in his sermon. And I thought that was like, it was just deliciously naughty. You know, like <laughs> I was just like cackling like the whole time. And I mean, you know, looking back, I don't know like how much edifying discipleship was really going on with, with that, you know, <laughs> the preaching to the choir, you know, and just, and haranguing Republicans. But, um, but it was, you know, it, that became my, um, my Sunday worship gotcha. uh, when I went to Sunday worship, like yeah. I, I didn't, I didn't quite go every week after that. Sure. It was more like once a month. Yeah. It was, uh, I mean, I'm sure it was, it was the catharsis you needed at the time. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that sometimes that, that is what you, you get what you need there. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, I, I totally get that. Um, so yeah. And then I just went, um, I did the Lutheran volunteer Corps after college. Um, so I went to a Lutheran church for a little while. Um, I went to a Unitarian church for a while after that. And then I moved out to the Midwest and I, and I wasn't going to church really, but then um, I had, uh, I just had some heavy things going on in my life. Um, I was dating a girl who was suicidal and I was self-medicating with a lot of things. And, um, and so I went back to church and the church that was in my neighborhood was a United Methodist church that was mostly um, gay people. And I walked in and saw that um, I was one of maybe two or three straight people in the room. And um, and I don't know, I just really breathed a sigh of relief because I was like, if, you know, gay Christians, like, this is a place where, you know, these are people who are completely rejected by the people that reject me. And so maybe I can be safe here. Hmm. Um, and it turned out that I was, and they really, um, I was really just ministered to and nurtured in that environment. Um, and it was in that space that I read, um, Henry Nowen's life of the beloved, which is an amazing book. Um, I read it in a book study with, uh, mostly 60 year old lesbians. And they, um, and they basically took care of me, uh, when, in a time when I was just really, really messed up, um, and, um, and just showed me this unconditional grace, like the whole thing with, um, life of the beloved is that, you know, Henry Nowen says basically that, that our life journey or quest is to become the beloved of God, to accept God's love for us. And, um, and he says, you know, it's actually not, not that easy to do, um, to really embrace the love that, that God has for us. And, and, and the way he explains it is that when you don't do that, um, you know, you do things that are self-destructive and hurtful to other people. And that's what sin is. You know, it's, it's not fully embracing your belovedness. And so that was just a very different framework for understanding the problem of sin and being separated from God than, um, you know, this kind of idea that we have, you know, that, that sin sort of accrues demerits with God and that, and that either we've 
you know, said the 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 magic prayer that you know gets us um, makes Jesus our personal Lord and Savior, or else God, you know, punishes us in hell forever. Like this idea that um that God simply wants me to accept the fact that I'm loved hmm. and um and, and and that doing that is what heals me of doing things that are hurtful. Um, yeah. that just made a lot more sense. Yeah, I know. I that that's that's a lot to chew on. And I um this is actually the the whole idea of sin in general is actually one of the things that um I personally at, at this kind of point in my understanding of this faith and everything is is one of the more perplexing parts. Um yeah. so like the the idea of of what exactly we refer to because I think that what you what you said about accruing to merits is like spot on especially when it comes from the sort of background that we both have and that a lot of our listeners have, um, mm. which is this evangelical background where you are really trying to just sort of correct your character all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'd, <laughs> I'd love to, to have you talk a little bit more about that just because I think this, um, this idea of basically sort of reframing sin as something that's a, that is about I, I don't even know like this is this is the part where i, I sort of stumble and i even mm. i i listened to um this inter- this interesting interview with richard Rohr on uh, the p holmes podcast uh, mm. you made it weird um he's a comedian but he's he yeah. he went to gordon conwell and he talks very openly about right about this sort of stuff and and um Rohr basically kind of says he's not really sure how to like how the concept of sin is valued is valuable when people need to, especially in this sort of age, understand this sort of relationship between God being loving and accepting that love, which uh, it's really just both of those things to me are are kind of perplexing. Um, God, God is this is, is love. I mean, but then, what how does how does sin factor into that um so throughout this sort of experience that you had maybe we can frame it this way um mm-hmm. you experience you experience this this sort of love and this sort of grace within the presence and through the ministry of these people that um if this was around the 90s 2000s there probably wasn't any like general sense of affirmation around gay and queer people um, nope. within, within religious circles, but then you saw this lived out. And so within mm-hmm. that context, how did, how did you learn about both, um, both sin and, and love? And, <laughs> yeah. um, cause right. I feel like there's some, they're both connected and that they're both at different times hard to accept. Yeah. Well, basically, um, so what I experienced within that community was almost kind of the opposite of an accountability group. <laughs> you know, um, I, I don't know if you ever got, you know, had one of those, but <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, we had a men's accountability group in college and it was kind of like, guys, I masturbated again, you know, and, and, and when you say that for like six weeks in a row, then it kind of, it's kind of like, <laughs> you know, 
it's dead. Maybe I'm just gonna. Maybe I'm just not gonna go anymore. <laughs> uh, and um, but but what it was was that when people accepted me and loved me without judgment, what I found was that I was less afraid and less ashamed. And some of the things that I was doing that were self-destructive, I, I was kind of, I, I started to be set free from doing them. Um, not because I had someone shaming me into, um, not because I was worried about what I was going to say to my accountability group, but because I was being invited into a space of love. Mm, yeah. And I was being invited to, to, Instead of, um, you know, self-medicating and acting out of anxiety and fear and shame, um, to 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 live fully into into the love and um, yeah, Nowen has this great passage um, in in his book Life of the Beloved that I um, that I wrote down in a journal entry at the time, and it talks about just. Um, opening your lungs to to fill yourself with the air, like it was like the air of God's belovedness. And so I remember, you know, I wrote at the time, I was like, am I going to stretch and open myself to God's love, or am I going to slouch in the corner with my cigarettes? Hmm. You know, and, um, and, and that was definitely, you know, and, and, I mean, I, I had a lot of healing to do and it certainly didn't happen overnight. And, sure. um, yeah. but, um, yeah, the way I understand, um, sin is, is simply that sin, you know, it's, it's the things that I do or believe that keep me from, um, from being God's love, you know, it's not so much that there's a rule against it. Um, it's whether I'm, you know, putting things into my body or filling my mind up with things that, um, you know, that, that cause me to inflict harm on others, you know, mm -hmm. and then of course, inflicting harm itself would be, you know, would be sinful. But, um, and it's not, it's just not about, it's not about rules. It's not about, um, you know, and it's not about like trying to, um, you know, sort of pound my will into submission or something like that. Yeah. It's, it's about embracing love and, um, and having that love, you know, just invite me into, into a, a more healthy way of way of living and way of thinking and way of understanding myself yeah yeah I, I i think framing framing something like that is so much more and i guess so affirming i mean I, i'll fall back to that word because it's just mm -hmm. um you know it's uh the alternative is i, I think and perhaps you know you you given your background and and growing up evangelical, like the thing, the alternative being that sort of path where sin is something that we're always kind of like turning around and hoping to 
to return to like really um mm. it's the thing we we think we desire um and thinking that god doesn't want us to have the things we desire um and then like clinging to him to try to avoid those things <laughs> and then um but but then really we should just be oriented to accept the love that's in front of us to begin with. Um, yeah. So one, one, um, one concept that I, that I talk about in my book that I think is really important um, in terms of understanding the, 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 the human condition and, and, and I think understanding it better than the kind of total depravity narrative of conservative evangelicalism, where we're just, we're, we're completely, filthy, you know, yeah. um, thoroughly immoral people. It's not that we're f- completely filthy and immoral. It's that we have a need or a tendency to want to justify ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And the problem is not so much that every moment of my life I am desperately wanting to sin and and, and do everything yeah. wrong and evil. <laughs> it's that when I do make mistakes— my inclination is to try to come up with some kind of excuse right and to try to preserve a a way of you know to to try to live in a world where i'm always right and mm-hmm. you know and, and not everyone not everyone you know different people are caught in this to different degrees um there are people who are just innately humble and self-reflective but i think the 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 point is to you know of receiving grace you know from Jesus is to be is to be set free from self-justification hmm. yeah um to get to where we're not always trying to rationalize everything that we do and prove that we're always right and of course the problem in evangelicalism is because there's such an emphasis on correctness you know particularly like having the correct doctrine it it sort of sabotages the salvation that Jesus has to offer, because you end up justifying yourself through your correct doctrine rather than accepting Jesus' justification for you. Mm, yeah. um, and so if you if you're locked into self-justification, whatever it is, then you're you're gonna have just an innate dishonesty at your core. Whereas if you're able to admit your mistakes, and you're you're teachable and um, and malleable, um, you know. Then you're going to have a much happier life because you're not constantly trying to defend yourself from every possible, you know, criticism. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, I really wanted. I'm really glad we we covered the the sin question and everything as it as it came up. I do want to loop back a little bit and um, and return to your sort of biographical story here. Mm-hmm. After you have this um, 
this experience, this very healing experience in the Midwest. Um, do you, is it after that that you sort of turn and decide to pursue ministry? Is it, or is, are there a couple other steps along the way? Yeah, there were a few other steps along the way. Um, I think for a while, I, you know, I mean, a big part of this, my journey is involves mental illness, um, involves pretty, pretty substantial depression, um, and anxiety. And, um, and so I, um, you know, I was, I, I continued to be kind of a mess. Um, and, um, and I was also, um, you know, I was, I, I was, I, I was pretty sexually promiscuous, um, and, and felt really guilty about that. And so, you know, it was kind of like, I knew that I was called to ministry, but I felt too dirty to, mm. to go into ministry. And so, so I, so I, um, I, I tried um, teaching high school for a little while, um, taught high school English, and I actually um, I actually got married um, during that time. And I think getting married and just kind of having my world a little more stable, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Then I got into the place where I was like, okay, yeah. um, I, I'm I'm an adult now. I can <laughs> happen to go into ministry. You know? <laughs> so so that led you in, into ministry. Did did any um, was the seminary process, was it, did you find it mostly helpful or, um, or did you continue to sort of evolve or flesh out the sort of ideas and intuitions you had about things through seminary or, or how, how was that? Yeah. So I went to Duke Divinity School, which was perfect for me. Um, Duke in, um, I mean, Duke is a great place for kind of a post-evangelical, um, because it's it's um it's not it's not super um super lefty in terms of um it, like i guess people would uh people at duke would describe themselves as kind of neo orthodox um like along the lines of like everyone loves Karl Barth there i'm i'm not as i'm not as i've never i never really got into bart um but it's like Bart and Bonhoeffer, and I'm I'm more of in the Bonhoeffer camp, I guess. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um, but it's very much that you know it's like we take the Bible seriously, and we understand um the history, you know, and we're not trying to argue that you know the Bible that the Old Testament was written by Moses because you know it you can there's like research and on you know all the different possible sources, you right. know, of, of the different texts. And so, you know, we don't believe that all of the letters that are attributed to Paul were actually written by Paul, you know? And so, so it was, it was really, um, really pretty, uh, pretty theologically moderate, um, but also had very much, um, a very strong, um, black church studies program and um and some black liberation theology which was really cool to get exposed to um so guy um jake heimer and carter who's there and willie jennings was there at the time i think he's now at yale and um and just had some really really great um really great faculty there and so so i was totally it was totally right where i needed to be at that time um, you know, giving me enough of, I think that if I'd gone to a place that was, um, that was like more liberal than that, um, I, I, I wouldn't have felt comfortable 
Mm-hmm. Um, cause it would have been sort of too far afield from, you know, my upbringing or something. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's, yeah, that's definitely consistent with lots of people's experience. Like if you're exposed to something that you're not necessarily ready for, then, right, um, right. then too many things crumble at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's not really constructive. <laughs> yeah. It, it becomes the opposite. So, um, I'd like to go ahead and, and turn for, for a little bit to your to your book um mm-hmm. and the book is called again how jesus saves the world from us uh, 12 antidotes to toxic christianity and each chapter is devoted to um these these different sorts of um characteristics or or facets of american christianity in particular um I, you, you mentioned mm-hmm. toxic christianity but um a lot of it's really specific to sort of the the sort of predicament that American churches are in. Is that fair? Yeah. Okay. Right. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, and I mean, to some degree, it's. It, I think mean, it's it's white American evangelicalism. It's my my background, you know. Right. But understanding that there are there's a toxicity within that, and there are healthy things within that. Um, but it's mostly about my people. <laughs> <laughs> So before we kind of get into, I I, I want to get into a, a few different um, parts of different chapters, just because I think it's really yeah. relevant to sort of headlines and also just kind of general trends we're seeing. Um, mm-hmm. But before we get into those more specifics, I just want to ask really, um, what was the sort of impetus behind you writing the book? What what were you wanting to learn through this process and share with 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 uh, your readers? Yeah, well, um, you know, I, I just felt like I was on a quest, um, really since college, um, just piecing together, um, all these different components of what, just what I would call a better story, um, a better (laughs) way of describing the gospel. And, um, you know, just growing up in this, in this kind of modern evangelicalism where everyone was ambivalent about the fundamentalist gospel, but no one really had an alternative to it. Um, you know, I was just so hungry to find a different framework for talking about things. And, um, yeah, and yeah, a number of different things were, um, part of that journey. Um, I started following a, um, a a Pentecostal preacher who's actually he's Pentecostal, but he's awesome. Um, I mean, not saying that Pentecostals aren't awesome, but <laughs> um, but ve- you know, very progressive. Um, his name's Jonathan Martin. Um, he also wrote uh, a couple of books, and um, and um, and one of the things he was talking about was that worship is delight. That worship is. Um, you know, is is it's not that we're, we're we're saying nice things about God to get Him to like us or something like that, or because we're supposed to, and somebody is grading us on how you know how emphatically we put our hands in the air and close our eyes, like when we sing you know K love songs. <laughs> um, it's that God is inviting us into a joyful existence. And and the point is to is to enter into the joy, and so that kind of became the foundation. Was just um, hearing hearing some of Jonathan's sermons, um, and and that's and that's the first chapter of the book is worship, not performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and so and so I looked at different ways that um, 
I guess that Christians kind of sabotage ourselves, you know, undermine our own salvation by um, trying to, by kind of creating these sort of subtle forms of works righteousness that, um, you know, ways of earning our salvation that we don't admit, we don't admit that we're trying to earn it, but we do it, you know, right. in terms yeah. of, um, and it, rather than just simply embracing the joy and the mercy that, that God has set before us. I thought that was a really interesting place to start the book. Um, just in that, I, I think for, um, for, for myself and maybe for other, for other listeners, like worship is like a sort of this or sun or even just saying Sunday worship or the, even the music part mm. can be a complicated sort of, um, <laughs> thing. Like I, I think for myself, just a little bit of a biography for me, like mm-hmm. I was very, um, I was very into youth, very much into youth group at the time was on the youth worship team. I had a lot of like emotional highs, like early mm. in like my teenage years that were like wrapped up in those sorts of events. And then, uh, starting in college, like they started to just flatten out, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. like it was probably just my emotions and my hormones and everything else also leveling out, but it was just this, um, sort of thing that became problematic or, or like, um, and it just mm-hmm. became, it became more of a burden than a joy. Uh, and mm-hmm. so, so having, having that be sort of the, the lead chapter was like, was challenging and kind of unexpected. And like, I knew from the title that this is going to sort of address problems within, um, within mm-hmm. the church, but that was sort of this, Oh, that this, <laughs> the way I sort of responded as I read it was like, Oh, this is, um, you know, addressing definitely a lot of things that, that I've experienced that I'm sure others have. Mm. Um, and because that sort of aspect of it being delight, um, if you, if you end up hating, like, uh, open the eyes of my heart as a song, <laughs> then, <laughs> how then, could you not? Cause we see it every freaking Sunday. <laughs> yeah. Um, it would be, you know, then it becomes hard to delight in that. <laughs> oh yeah, but, absolutely. You know? So, so my thing is, you know, and honest, honest to God, I can't worship in contemporary praise settings. I mean, you know, I'll, 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 endure them, you know, and, and we, we do sing, you know, Chris Tomlin songs at our campus ministry. Um, but for me to worship, it's really usually in terms of under like worship in the state of my heart. Um, it, it usually requires a, um, more of a, you know, kind of, um, contemplative setting, mm, you know, like, yeah. a like like a Catholic mass or a Tizé service or something like that, or um, being in nature, you know, sitting next to a creek. Yeah. Um, those are the spaces where I experience the delight of God. You know, it's not, I, I just, I, I, there's just too much. I, I think I just have too much baggage, um, you know, just concerning my own authenticity or lack thereof when I'm in a room where people are, you know, being very emotive with their gestures and, um, 
you, you know, and I don't know, just just seeming like they're on the verge of having a heart attack or, <laughs> or an orgasm or whatever, that, you know, happens with people you know, seeing open the eyes of my heart. <laughs> um, I don't know if you've ever seen the South Park where uh, the 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 guys, the kids in South Park <laughs> start a Christian rock band. But oh, that sounds wonderful. It's, <laughs> I haven't seen it. It's, I'll I mean, check it out. it's very South Park. It's, you know, it's irreverent <laughs> and, and, and crude, but, uh, no, <laughs> but it's worth looking up. <laughs> um, cause Cartman comes up with some creative things. <laughs> That's um, but, uh, a lot of the other chapters are, are just as convicting and, and interesting and compelling. Um, and I wanted to talk through some of them. Um, and the first one, and I, I'm really just putting it out there. I'm really sort of thinking of this within the context of this very violent and uh, disturbing national election and everything mm-hmm. that's uh, encompassed Every, everything that's encompassed that and also leading up to we're recording this just the the monday after the women's march that happened across the country and the world so a lot of um a lot of what i want to ask you about and sort of talk about is within that particular historical framework um mm. so the first uh item is from this chapter called mercy not sacrifice yeah. and um it's really this idea that that Sacrifice is uh, sort of something that um, I, I guess, like entitled people, sort of <laughs> right. they build up as that they're sacrificing for someone else. When really, the desire that God has for mm-hmm. us is to be merciful, um, right? And it, you you write that any group defined by sacrificial purity needs impure outsiders with which to contrast itself. Yep. Um, so what? How do you interpret that within the context of of a church of your of how you see the responsibility of individual and individual Christians as well as groups of Christians? Yeah, well, I mean, basically, um, so mercy not sacrifice. The phrase is taken from it's actually uh, from a um, Old Testament uh, prophecy that Jesus quotes in twice in conversation with Pharisees. Uh, the whole phrase is, God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And really, that's kind of a fault line between Jesus and the Pharisees um, <laughs> in terms of how they understood what um, what their faith was about. Um, you know, for Jesus, it's about showing mercy to other people. And, um, and for the Pharisees, it's about, um, you know, following a strict set of you know, religious laws um, to making sacrifices to show God that that you are loyal and faithful, and um, yeah, and basically, um, what I think really is um, just ubiquitous in in kind of the um, the middle upper class white evangelical world um, in in the United States is um, is a culture of sacrifice. And not and and not really and see the thing is it isn't really sacrifice it's we call it sacrifice but you know essentially um, you know doing without um, R-rated movies uh, cuss words <laughs> cigarettes yeah. um, and you know of course premarital sex you know uh, you know and so we're uh, we we kind of zero in on 
a handful of things that we don't do that that basically because we don't do them that's what that's that defines us as as christian and that justifies us and because all of our energy is focused on that we don't we don't do any of the matthew 25 kind of stuff you know the um you know welcoming the stranger visiting the sick um you know going to to see people when they're in prison clothing the naked um we 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 don't have to do that because we're we know that we're right and other people are wrong because we don't have premarital sex or smoke cigarettes or say cuss words. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, uh, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm still just left. <laughs> I, yeah, I went to a very legalistic school, so we couldn't ra- watch rated yeah. R movies. It, I mean, that was just mm-hmm. very, I'm having a right. flash. <laughs> I'm having a flashback. Yeah, sacrifice <laughs> is the substitute for mercy. Jesus tells us to do the opposite. Jesus says, you know, and, and now we do have to make sacrifices to be merciful. Um, I mean, it means, you know, to be merciful means that sometimes um, I'm going to bite my tongue when I could say something really judgmental about somebody who I'm trying to help and they're being, you know, I, I don't know, presumptuous or, um, you know, not responding to me in a nice way. Um, so I do have to make sacrifices to be merciful, but it, but I just can't, I can't come up with my arbitrary list of, of, of sacrifices and, and, and assume that that means that, that I'm excused from showing mercy to others. Right. Yeah. And I, I really do appreciate how you point out that, that this sort of sacrificial thinking creates a sense of other, that it creates division amongst people. And yeah, and that, I mean that's the investment in the whole gay issue, you know, because the if if it's okay to be gay, then the whole apparatus built around avoiding premarital sex and having this kind of strict, you know, patriarchal, you know, model for human relationships, like all of that falls apart, and you lose your basis for self justification. Yeah, you know. And, um, and, and so that has to be, you know, the, the anti-gay thing has to be maintained at all costs, you know, in order to maintain the sacrificial edifice. Right. And I think a through line of what a lot of this is about is that uh, a lot of what your chapters are about is that the sorts of things that we have built up within evangelicalism, other sorts of cultural trappings are essentially ways to distract ourselves from yep. the call, yep. the different, the, the very radical sort of things that, that mm-hmm. Jesus has to say. Um, and another chapter, uh, which is breath, not meat. Um, you have a lot to say about basically consumerism and one of my, mm. um, n- not just consumerism, really the, the chapter is very much about how, um, our bodies and our, are part of our entire being. There's no sort of uh, uh, dualistic break between right. the the flesh isn't evil. It may be weak, right. but it's not evil. That sort of thing. Right. Um, but one of the things I actually pulled out and really uh, hit home with me is a line where you say, "The sneakiest trick that the market pulls today is to convince us that our primary moral responsibility as adults in today's society is to be conscientious consumers." Um, oh yeah. <laughs> so I I really love what that has to say about um this sort of sense of uh willful distraction and that mm-hmm. um 
when the only way you're processing ethical decisions is the way you choose to buy things, um, that that is essentially a sort mm-hmm. of a, a very short-sighted t- sort of distraction. And I'm I'm definitely guilty of this. Mm-hmm. Um, but what other what other ways um, do we sort of sell our, sell ourselves short of um, of what? Jesus is trying to save us from or save ourselves from in this sort of context where, um, you know, you could buy organic or you could buy local or, um, and it's really just about what you purchase and not what you do. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, I think, I, I think it's great to buy organic and buy local, you know, and all these <laughs> things, but what, um, where it becomes toxic is when you get caught up in the moralism of it. Um, and I think it's really important that to understand that following the flesh is not the same thing as delighting in your senses. Um, that people who savor life um, and enjoy what um, what they're doing and um, and are able to be present to um, to each moment, they are living according to the spirit. Um, living according to the flesh is when I am in, just crippled by anxiety and um, and and this and this sort of sense of um, you know having having these long um, to do lists of you know I, I mean like conscientious consumerism where where I just spend hours and hours trying to um, you know trying to make the right choice. And um, so I think it's just important that being moralistic is not what the goal is. The goal yeah. is to enjoy um, and to learn how to enjoy. But, but part of that, it, it does involve some discipline um, because, the, you know, just in the same way that, you know, appreciating any kind of culture um, or art it involves kind of training our senses, you know, and, um, and, 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 you know, enabling us to, to appreciate things that are subtle and, um, you know, exquisite. Um, and, but, but I, I just think it's really important to, um, because, yeah, we can just get caught up in so many different forms of moralism, you know, the, it's, it's just, it, Moralism is not the solution to gluttony. Um, <laughs> the solution to gluttony is to be fully present, to enjoy what we're eating rather than or eating or consuming in whatever way, rather than just scarfing it down. Sure. Mindlessly. Yeah. I, I'm an anxious eater. <laughs> like, that's how oh, like, I am too. Uh, you Gosh. know, so like, uh, I mean, like, I, it's only been within the last year of being basically more mindful of the very things you're talking about like Mm -hmm. where yeah when i'm when i'm like an anxious eater when i'm stressed out of my mind and i find a bag of potato chips and i eat half the bag it's not that it's not that i'm hungry it's it's just that i'm yeah it's i'm just eating anxiously i'm i'm eating nothing tastes better than feelings But, but yeah, you've got to, uh, you know, sort of recognize what that is. Um, mm-hmm. and I, this, 
moralism that you mentioned, which is, as you said, it's not the solution to gluttony. It's not the solution to these sorts of things. Um, one of the things that really helps be, be the bedrock of that sort of moralism is a sort of fundamentalist understanding and interpretation of the Bible. Um, mm-hmm. And you address that directly within uh, the poetry and not math uh, aspect right. of, of the book. Um, and you talk about biblical literalism and um, and the different sort of the background, the historical background between fundamentalists and modernists and what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a great chapter, uh, but th- as you mentioned, moralism, that definitely it made me think this is what makes that sort of moralizing possible is a, is a sort of surface level reading of the Bible. Mm-hmm. Um, so how did, how do people engage the text in a more meaningful sort of poetic way? And what does that, what does yeah. that mean for you to say that it's not a math equation to be solved, but a poem to be read and experienced? Right. Yeah, I mean, basically, um, I think a lot of people look at the Bible as being analogous to a word problem, you know, in fourth grade math class, where what you're supposed to do is is look at the words and then find the simple formula that's underneath them. And so you just, so you just, you basically, the words are basically meaningless because what's the real meaning is in the formula. Um and and that's a lot of people just have a very reductionist uh, way of reading scripture because they're like you know what do I need to do to be saved you know what do I need to do to you know to follow the rules and um, and and so much of the Bible is meant to be savored and pondered and not solved. <laughs> it's not meant. It's not a problem to be solved. It is. It's it's a mantra to be meditated on. Um, and really, for me, the way that I most use the Bible now is um, as a source for prayer and liturgy, um, you know, and particularly the Psalms. Um, I'll just, I, I just take, um, I'll, I'll, I'll read the, so I have kind of a daily lectionary app in my phone, and I'll read the Psalm for the day. And, and when I find a line from a Psalm that's just something that I need to be that I need to be saying over and over again, then I, I just make it my prayer for the day. Um, like there's a um, there's a, a line from a psalm that um, says, "Let your steadfast love become my comfort," and and that's something that I just need to say over and over and over again. You know, for, through all of all of my anxiety and and rage and all these other emotions that come up. You know, to kind of return to that place where, uh, where I remember that that God loves me, and that and and wanting for that to actually be comforting to me, because most of the time it isn't. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's uh, <laughs> those sorts of those sorts of prayers never um, sort of lose their relevance. When right. You, when they you, feel do, you don't, <laughs> they they don't they're not they don't get solved. You know, yeah. you don't. It's it's words that we are given to say, in order to um, in order to survive, you know. And and the thing is that people who people who actually are oppressed and marginalized, unlike me, um, they get this, you know. Mm-hmm. What 
if, if you want to know how to use the Bible, look at what the Black Church has done with the Bible and how they have incorporated the Bible into, um, into, into, into their songs. Um, and um, it's, you, you know, that, um, you know, I just, I just think it's, 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 it's liturgical rather than um, ideological. Hmm. Yeah, it's an experience instead of a, a point to be, mm-hmm. uh, instead of a point to be argued for. Yep, yep. Yeah. that I want to talk the book covers a, a lot I mentioned that there's uh, 12 different chapters and they all address different topics um, but given the moment we're sort that we're in um, and relevant to the protests that we saw uh, mm. unfold a, across the nation um, from Washington DC to where I am in Chicago to where you are in New Orleans to like small town Alaska I mean it was everywhere um we we have seen this sort of um movement of of women and other people that are uh, standing up for women um within this particular context of our uh our current president had a very had numerous th- uh facts come out about him that were extremely misogynist and unfortunate mm-hmm. um and several of your chapters really speak directly to this. Um, and I'm going to kind of lump all of them together in, in this, uh, this section here, but one of them is called solidarity, not sanctimony. Another is outsiders, not insiders. And another, a third one is uh, servanthood and not leadership. Mm, um, mm-hmm. so you have these three chapters that really, um, address these different aspects of ways that, um, Christians, and other people who may no longer be Christians who have um, evangelical baggage, <laughs> um, people that that may be at some other point in their 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 life, uh, wherever they may be, they may not identify as anything. Um, I'm very interested in the idea of solidarity and what it means mm. um, to be to stand in solidarity and to to look at what. Um, what Jesus did and how he showed solidarity <clears throat> with people. Um, so if you could talk a little bit about the way in which Jesus expressed solidarity through his actions mm-hmm. in, in the gospels. Yeah. Solidarity, um, I think is, is really the meaning of the incarnation of Jesus coming to earth. I mean, Jesus is God's solidarity with humanity and 
that's, I think, is the best way to understand the cross. Um, the cross is Jesus standing in solidarity with the crucified. Um, and, um, and, and basically being willing to, because the reason that he was crucified, the reason that he fell out of, you know, favor with the religious authorities was his continual insistence upon um, centering the needs of the marginalized. Um, you know, when he was in the synagogue, you know, refusing to let, you know, business as usual occur in the synagogue on the Sabbath, God's holy day, you're not supposed to do any work. If he saw somebody who was afflicted, you know, with any kind of malady, he would heal them because he wanted them to have a Sabbath. And he says the Sabbath is made for humanity, not for not humanity for the Sabbath. And so um, to when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, he's not telling us that he wants us to avoid premarital sex and do a 30-minute quiet time every, you know, morning uh, at 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. That's not that's not taking up your cross. Taking up your cross means that you're actually risking your life. You're actually risking your reputation. You know, you're actually stepping out of your, you know, of your comfort zone. You're actually stepping out of your privilege and walking with people who are being crucified by the world. You know, standing in solidarity with them. And and that's what that's what our Christian life is supposed to be about. And I think that it's very important to understand when um when we talk about things like holiness and sin and you know the importance of of being sanctified, the purpose of being sanctified um is not so that God can have a shiny trophy on his shelf. We're not trophies on God's shelf. We are vessels of God's love in the world. And so the reason that um, that I need to that I need to purge my heart of idols, and that I need to um, to deal with um, you know to uh, to seek reconciliation in every you know conflict that I have with other people is so that I can be completely available to people who need my solidarity. Hmm. You know, so that I'm not going to have a um, any baggage or selfish agenda that keeps me from showing solidarity to others. And um, that's, that's the point. You know, God shows us mercy so that we show mercy to others. God stands in solidarity with us through Jesus on his cross so that we likewise will take up our crosses to show solidarity to others who are being crucified. Hmm. One of the things you also talk about, too, and um, is this— idea that that God shows solidarity not only to the oppressors uh, oppressed but also right to oppressors to oppressors um, yep and again sort of in in this sort of uh environment we're in where we have people that are aligning um with just within this particular context they're aligning with Trump uh they're they're aligning with the Republican party whatever you want to say um, and they are viewed as oppressors, and then right. you have you have people that are you have split families. You have people that are upset, and you may have children that are 
uh, vocal and angry about sort of the way things are. And then you have parents that sort of don't necessarily understand the sort of perspective. Um, See, so- here's the problem. Here's the problem with Jesus. Um, and this is what made people really mad. Uh, this is part of what people made, made, the, made the Pharisees really mad. Um, Jesus, if he were a musician, uh, like a Grammy award-winning musician, he would have performed at Trump's inauguration. Hmm. He would have not only performed at Trump's inauguration, he would have gone to the banquet, to the ball, and um, and hung out and laughed with people, you know, and drank their champagne with them, because that's what he did when he hung out with the tax collectors. He was hanging right. out with filthy rich people who were, you know, who took advantage of their fellow Jews and and were just ruthless, nasty people. Um, and he went and hung out with them and, and, and validated them, you know, by eating lunch at Zacchaeus's house, you know? And I mean, that's the uncomfortable thing that we have to deal with is Jesus doesn't just show solidarity to the people that I want him to show solidarity to. He shows solidarity to the people that I, that I want to judge other people for associating with, right? you know, and I would judge him, you know, if he were alive today. And, um, and that's the thing. That's the thing about the cross is that it's both solidarity with the oppressed, but it's also solidarity with the oppressor. It's also, um, you know, Jesus, um, you know, being um, receiving the world's judgment, um, and you know, and also, um, you know, standing with, um, you know, the victims of of sin. Just to tease that out a little bit more, mm-hmm. yeah. what what is his what is and the way we the way we see this play out within the gospels, what is his intention in um in doing that? What is his intention in going to Zacchaeus's house? What is in, right. his intention there? Um yeah, the, the goal is always reconciliation. You know, that and, and that's and that's the way the Apostle Paul describes he says we we are ministers of reconciliation. You know, that that's what it's about is it's it's not about you know, making sure that the bad people know how evil they are and and just shitting all over them, um, you know, perfectly so that they can just dissolve and, you know, into a puddle or something. It's it's redeeming um, sinners of all kinds, including really rich, really white, really, you know, Republican, what you know, including fundamentalists, you know, <laughs> including right. um you know, it's it's not, and that's the thing that's so beautiful about the, um, you know, how he says the prostitutes and the tax collectors are entering the kingdom of heaven above you, in, you know, in front of you. He says that to the Pharisees. Well, the Pharisees could have just as easily be, the Pharisees aren't just culture warriors, you know, they're also social justice warriors, you know, and so, and it's like the prostitutes on the one hand are like, you know, these, um, you know the 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 sex workers that the right wing people love to judge, and the tax collectors are the Wall Street sharks that the left wing people love to judge. You know, and it's like we don't, um, you know, Jesus. And the one thing that was consistent about Jesus was that if you judge someone else in his presence, he would lay the smack down on you, regardless of who it was. Right. You know, regardless of whether they were, you know, left wing or right wing or rich or poor, you know, he did not allow people to judge in his presence. Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's sorry. I 
uh, <laughs> that this is one of the times when I'm when I'm talking to one of my guests and you you spin me off into pondering something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's cool. <laughs> so another kind of the final thing that I want to tie to these very recent events, the sorts of things that I personally am trying to process that other people mm-hmm. are are out there probably trying to process too is. In one chapter called uh, Servanthood, Not Leadership, you have a, mm. uh, you break down the ways in which the three temptations um, mm. can really, yes. the three temptations of Christ really tie into the sorts of temptations that people that are ostensibly Christian leaders um, sort of fall prey, are prey to. Um, the first one you, you say relevance, the second one is popularity, and the third one is control. Um, and then you look at all all the three different temptations that that Satan gave to uh, Jesus in the desert, and how those sorts of play out. Um, and just relevant to um, to what we've seen in public figures like Franklin Graham and Jerry Falwell Jr. Mm-hmm. and all these people that that um, that really endorsed heavily. Um, Right. Trump's Trump's candidacy, Trump's presidency. Um, I'm really, I really read this <laughs> with them in mind, um, and, and not to say that, like, mm. um, not to say that this doesn't have something to say to me with uh, like an upstart sure. upstart podcast. You know, like mm. there's something yeah. there's something there for me to hear too. But but I'm seeing these sorts of missteps and the things that I wish mm. that. Uh, the things that make me angry, the things that I that I see as perversions, like uh, Franklin Graham saying that rain is a sign of blessing. Uh, well, <laughs> rain is rain fell in the just and unjust alike. So uh, exactly, it's kind of a neutral, yeah, <laughs> a neutral yeah. sign. But um, but anyways, these these three uh, things um. Uh, ta, 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 relevance, popularity, and control. Um, right. How did how you see them manifesting um, in in ways that in in our culture within the Christian sphere, and like how how do you feel like we should combat them personally and sort mm. of socially? Yeah. So, um, and first of all, before I go any further, I should say that I. I totally took these from Henry now and he wrote a book called in the name of Jesus, which is one of the best books on leadership that I've ever read. Um, it, it's basically the three temptations of leadership, uh, to try to be relevant, to try to be popular and to try to be, to, to try to have power and control over others, you know? And, um, yeah, I mean, basically, um, I think that it's definitely, you know, so I think the first two are more tempting for me than the third one. You know, I kind of think of the control issue as that that's the thing that in 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 the conservative world because there's such, you know, paranoia about um, you know, not wanting any kind of heresy to seep into your community and so you've got to kind of have this iron fist of, of control over the doctrine that people are, you know, exposed to. And, um, and it's just like, um, I mean, basically when, when I look at, you know, what Jesus modeled for us, and when I look at leadership, 
is about empowering other people. It's about helping other people to discover their gifts um, and, 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 and helping them to, um, to achieve what God has given them to achieve. And I think that um, one of the things that I argued in my chapter is that um, instead of seeing myself as a shepherd, um, you know, in, insofar as I'm a Christian leader, I need to understand myself as a sheep who listens to my shepherd and helps other people to hear the voice of our shepherd. Um, I'm not, I'm not an intermediary between people that I serve and Jesus. You know, I'm not the one, the, the expert, the one who has the one right interpretation of the Bible. Um, what my job is to do is to create a context where people can have meaningful conversation about um, what Jesus is doing in their lives and about what the Bible teaches and, and reveals to us. And, um, and, and through that conversation, for us to discover uh, the mission that God has given to each of us. And so it's more of a facilitator role than a, um, you know, than a dictator role. Um, but one of my one of my challenges is that I, you know, particularly in the um, in the blogosphere, um, I succumb very easily to the, um, you know, thinking that you know I I need to I need to build my platform like I need to grow my readership so that I can have a greater influence because people need to hear the message that I have so that you know. And um, it's just very easy to get to to have this kind of culture turn you into a narcissist, you know. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's so, gosh, it's so hard to resist. Absolutely. That it's just like this inertia that this kind of tractor beam that pulls you into <laughs> um, into a just a disgusting kind of um, you know self deification. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh... I I don't know. Google Analytics does something weird to a writer's impulse. Oh gosh, I hate <laughs> Google Analytics, and I look at it like every day, like six or seven times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so to sort of uh, to sort of wrap up this bit about your book, the kind of the last question I I have for you is really something um, tailored specifically for. <laughs> people like you and me which are straight white dudes um basically yeah. you know what um what business do we sort of have talking about talking about these things and also um how, uh, right. how do how do we also essentially um because this is an open question for me and really i'm uh as far as like how what is the best way to support without mansplaining without um, uh, without yeah, yeah. without coming across as man mansplaining without um speaking over someone mm. um like being a i being an ally whatever that means whether that's a, an empty empty vacuous word um Right. Just it's it's like it's you know, you, you can't say you're 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 a woke white dude, you know, it's just kind of I mean, but but there is an impulse right. to try to do something supportive without it being 
douchey <laughs> being like yeah exactly you know? right and so i mean you are you have a very good um perspective on this because you are in a an urban setting doing active ministry so mm. how in in light of that how do you sort of um view the role of people similar to us where we we may be progressive um you know progressive white folks they are well-meaning but <laughs> don't want to come right. out, come across as an ass or, or a jerk or whatever else yeah um, um... Well, th- I mean, this is, it's like a, it's a lifelong process, you know? Um, and I think that one of the, you know, one of the key things is to be very cognizant of, again, going back to self-justification of my need to turn everything into, um, y- you know, to make everything about me and how awesome I am and how woke I am and how I'm not like those other white guys. And, <laughs> yeah. um, it's, uh, you know, it's a constant temptation um, to to sort of revel in my awesomeness and look at me, I'm hanging out with black people, you know, and um, it's, um, you know, I think that it's just, you know, there's not really um, a formula so much as just a posture of humility, right? And um, and and to assume. Uh, this is where, you know, honestly, um, I feel like my evangelical upbringing has actually helped me as a, um, you know, as a sort of social justice warrior or whatever it is that I'm called, um, because, you know, I kind of presume that I'm a sinner and that I'm going to fuck up and that, um, you know, and so, um, I'm not, you know, I, I mean, I, you kind of have to just have your antenna, uh, tweaked over time in terms of understanding what are, what are things, what are the douchey things that I shouldn't say? <laughs> um, but I think what's really important is when somebody actually, you know, does the very courageous thing of calling you out, uh, which is a very hard thing to do and, and very uncomfortable. Um, that you respond to that with absolute humility and gratitude. Um, and you don't become defensive and flustered. And even though, even though it's hurtful, you know, um, it's that, um, I mean, the, the, the best love that I've received in, in kind of the activist world are people who told me that um, I was being a douche. And help me to understand that I was, you know, I was appropriating, um, you know, other people's struggles for my self-justification, you know, and that I needed to step back and and, and listen and not make myself the expert on um, things that I didn't really know about. Right. Yeah. And um, for me, that that's that's huge, too, just and on like uh twitter has been helpful just in that you can follow people and just listen you don't have to right. say a damn thing you can right, just right. you can just sit back and absorb their yeah. <laughs> uh their perspective and over time you know that's a way to tweak your antenna <laughs> like mm-hmm. and you can benefit from their lived experience and you don't have to say a damn thing you just have to read and exactly. listen exactly <laughs> yeah um, so for where you are now um how do you feel about things sort of in general as far as um 
you know, throughout your ministry and, and where you are, um, personally with, with how things are sort of headed as, as the church is trying to navigate, um, a world where people are upset or whatever with, with Christians right. or with, um, like, how do you feel about it? Do you feel, um, uh, one, one way I sort of phrase this question with, with some guests is like, what makes you stay? <laughs> like, um, right. what, what's your, what is compelling to you? What is main, continues to be redemptive to you through your current work and what, what compels you forward to keep, you know, sort of tackling these questions where some people, um, and justifiably so just, uh, reach a point where they need to disengage. Um, so how, yeah, how's that for you, know, you? So, okay. So to be honest, um, I'm pretty tired. <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> and I, I mean, I, I don't think I've, I, yeah. Facebook told me that, um, you know, so I have like a, um, you know, a blog author page on Facebook and Facebook told me, you haven't posted anything, Reverend Morgan Guyton, you know, <laughs> recently. Your followers need to hear from you. <laughs> and um, yeah, and it's because I, I just I just don't have anything to say. You know, I mean I I've kind of said what I have to say and um I'm I'm yeah, I'm kind of struggling to figure out and and it's just like I so one thing I did was I I took all social media off my phone. Because it just it didn't you know I don't need to have it on my phone, mm-hmm. um, and so I only I only engage in it when I'm in front of my laptop, which I I'm realizing just isn't very often because uh, usually I'm just out and about, and uh, and every time I get on to Facebook I'm just like I I just I just I don't want to be it's just a conversation I don't want to be a part of right now yeah uh, and um, even. You know, even people think, saying things that are legitimate and 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 making you know legitimate criticisms of what's going on. Um, I would say that what gives me life and hope are the relationships I have in my local community with uh, with my students, and um, just sitting with them and loving them and learning from them. And that's kind of what I'm focused on right now. Um, I think that. You know, maybe I'll recharge. I mean, I'm sure that I'll write blog posts again, but I'm just kind of, I'm just kind of letting things go fallow for a little bit. Sure. Yeah. And that, that has an incredible value. And I, I think that'll, as, as we, you know, we all like mainlined social media for 10 years. Like, you know, it started probably in earnest in 2004, 2006. Yeah. And now like, <laughs> I think people are starting to feel that and they're starting to feel that burnout for sure. Oh um, gosh, and and I, I will say the the book is a, a wonderful testament and an artifact to what you what your concerns and are and what mm. you have to say. So thank you for for writing it. It was really great to um cool. to read it, and it yeah. definitely uh, was was very insightful, very um, compelling, and in, in lots and lots of ways that I couldn't even get to all of them. Awesome. I know. I know. You mentioned that you're you're not really active on uh, on Facebook or Twitter or wherever else right now. Um, but in the event that you do pick up pick up the pen or the virtual pen in the future, um, where can people find you online? Yeah. Um, so my blog, Mercy Not Sacrifice, is on Pathios on the Progressive Christian Portal. Um, 
and I'm just on Facebook. Um, f- you know, facebook.com slash Rev Morgan Guyton, um, and then Twitter at MA Guyton. Um, and, and yeah. So, um, yeah, and I'll, you know, I'm still, I still say, I still get on there a little bit and I'll, <laughs> yeah. I'll be back. I'll be back. Sure. I'm yeah, sure. Yeah. But yeah, I just need a little bit of detox. Time. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. So again, the book is uh, How Jesus Saves the World from Us, 12 Antidotes to Toxic Christianity. Um, Morgan, thank you very much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much, Blake. Strength of one, but the union makes us strong.